Well, good evening. It is good to have this opportunity to worship with you and to preach to you from God's Holy Word. And I get the double privilege of having the opportunity to preach uh, once again uh, on this Lord's Day to the few that have come from Lake Chapel. Um, I was afraid that I may have exhausted the congregation this morning, so I'm glad <laughs> to see you. Uh, but I think what I did instead was exhaust myself, so pray that I will have strength to preach this evening. Well, I've already been helped and blessed by the worship uh, that has already taken place this evening, uh, by the prayers, by the giving, uh, the reading of Scripture. Um, it has been a blessing already to worship with you. And it is my prayer that God would continue to bless us as the Word of God is preached and as it is heard. Brothers and sisters, I need the grace of God if I'm going to preach as I ought to preach this evening. But you also need the grace of God if you're going to hear as you ought to hear this evening. And so I covet your prayers in that regard. And we need grace, not just, we need grace to do this in the very moment. We, we don't live on yesterday's grace. And so we need the very triune God to meet with us in this moment and give us grace as we seek to worship Him through the preaching of the Word. And so let us be mindful of that as we proceed in worship. We come before God as those who are dependent. We need His grace. Well, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And I want to turn to chapter 3. So if you would, turn to Hebrews chapter 3. And we're going to read together verses 12 through 14. This is God's Word. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Thus the reading of God's word, and if his people would please say, Amen. Amen. Let's pause at this time and ask for God's help. Father, we approach you this evening as your sons and your daughters. And so we have great peace and joy and confidence as we enter into your holy presence. But we also remember that you are the, thr the thrice holy God. And as your word tells us, you are a consuming fire. And you do not and you cannot tolerate sin. And so, Father, we come this evening with a desire to be changed by you. We desire to grow in our appreciation and in our understanding of your holiness. We desire to grow in our hatred of sin and in our resolve to put to death the deeds of the body by the very life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. And, Father, we desire to see afresh the glory of the salvation that you have provided to us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand that we must persevere to the end if we shall be saved, but also to remember that we have every reason to have confidence that we will persevere if we look to Jesus. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen. Well, the title of this evening's sermon is, Why Warn Christians to Not Fall Away? And so that's the question that I want to address with you, and I want to address this question primarily by looking at the book of Hebrews. I was actually talking to Brother Paul a couple of weeks ago while we were up in Tennessee, and he had mentioned to me that he had nearly preached through the entire New Testament in his 18 years at Tibet which is an amazing feat and such, it really is such a blessing for a local church. And so those of you from Tibet, you should be thankful for the longevity and the commitment to the verse-by-verse -verse exposition of Scripture that you have enjoyed for nearly two decades. And so I asked Brother Paul, what, what order has, has he preached through the New Testament? He could start in the Gospels and just go through. And he said, no, he actually started with the book of Hebrews, which I thought was pretty interesting. And um, so we talked about that for a while, and I had mentioned to him 
that here at Emmanuel over the past three months, we have been reading through the book of Hebrews in our morning scripture readings. And just reading through the book of Hebrews has been such a great blessing for my soul. And perhaps one day, Lord willing, I will either sit under the preaching of the book of Hebrews all the way through or perhaps preach through the book myself. Um, But because at Emmanuel we have been in this book during our morning scripture readings, um, I thought that it would be appropriate for us to look to the book of Hebrews tonight for our sermon. Now, I mentioned that the question I wanted to address with you is the question, why warn Christians to not fall away? And the reason I ask this question in that way is because I believe we are confronted with that question as we read through the book of Hebrews. And also because the three churches that are represented here tonight, we all hold a common belief in the doctrines of grace and in the sovereignty of God and the salvation of men. As those who hold to a Calvinistic understanding of salvation, when we are confronted with questions concerning apostasy, that is, falling away from the faith, we run to the truth that no Christian will truly fall away because we believe in the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. We believe that a Christian will not lose their salvation. And we believe it because the Bible is absolutely crystal clear on that reality. If God has begun a good work in us, He will bring it to completion. Jesus says in John that He has come to do the will of the Father And this is the will of the Father, that all those that the Father has given to the Son, that the Son should lose none of of those, and that He would raise them up on the last day. The Bible teaches us that no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand, and that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches us that for those whom God has foreknown, He has predestined, And those whom He has predestined, He has called. And those whom He has called, He has justified. And those whom He has justified, He will most certainly glorify. And so salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end, and and therefore this is an unbreakable chain. Beloved, God would cease to be God if He failed to save to the uttermost those who have been united to His Son by faith. And so if you are a Christian, you will not lose your salvation. I'll repeat that. If you are a Christian, you will not lose your salvation. And I hesitate to say that to think otherwise is heresy, but if it's not heresy, it is awfully close to being heresy. And so the question that I posed at the beginning, I think, becomes very important for us to wrestle with. If a Christian will not fall away and therefore cannot lose their salvation, then why do we have repeated warnings given to believers to not fall away from the faith? Why do we have warnings in Scripture that tell us as Christians, if you fall away from the faith, you will lose your salvation and you will be damned. You will go to hell if you fall away. The Scriptures warn us. The New Testament in particular is full of warnings to not fall away from the faith. And it is full of exhortations to hold fast and to persevere to the end. And it makes it explicitly clear that in order to be saved, you must persevere to the end and not fall away. (coughs) Perhaps the book where we see this most clearly is the book of Hebrews. And so I want to explore Hebrews a bit with you in hopes to answer this question. Why warn Christians to not fall away? when we know for a fact and that it is clear that a Christian cannot lose their salvation and that a Christian will not ultimately fall away from Christ. Well, in order to do this, we need to understand a little bit about the book of Hebrews. Now, what is the book of Hebrews about? What is the primary theme of this book? Well, if you had to boil it down, to perhaps three words, I'm, I'm pretty sure I know what three words most of you would say. You'd probably immediately say, Jesus is better. That is, that is where our minds most readily go when we think about the, the main theme of the book of Hebrews. That the book of Hebrews is a proclamation of the person and the work of Christ. The book of Hebrews is a Christological masterpiece. It is about the preeminence of Christ. It begins in chapter 1 by setting forth the reality that Christ is 
the full and perfect revelation of God. The book then goes on to set forth the glory of Christ with perhaps the clearest and most explicit statement concerning the deity of Christ in all of the Scripture. In chapter 1, verse 9, we read that the Father says of the Son, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And so if there's any doubt concerning the divine nature of the Son, this book destroys that doubt. The Father explicitly says that the Son is God. Hebrews then goes on to make several comparisons regarding Jesus Christ. It compares Jesus to angels, it compares Him to Moses, and it compares Him to the Old Covenant priesthood. And in every case, the author of the book of Hebrews emphatically declares that Jesus is better, that Jesus is greater. And because this Jesus is worthy of our worship, He is worthy to be followed and He is worthy to be trusted because He is the King of kings. He is God incarnate and He is the prophet of prophets. He is the perfect and full revelation of God. As it says, in these last days God has spoken to us through His Son, meaning there is no need for any further revelation and a desire for and an insistence upon any further revelation is an insult to the supremacy of Christ. And further, this book goes to great lengths to reveal that Jesus is our great high priest that is better than all other priests because he has made that once for all sacrifice that forever purifies and saves all those that trust in him. And thus, the conclusion of the, uh, that the author of the book of Hebrews makes after proclaiming the gospel truth that Jesus is better is found for us in chapter 7, verse 25, where it says, Consequently, because this Jesus is who he is, he is able to save to the uttermost, that is completely, through and through, those who draw near to God through him. And so the book of Hebrews teaches us that Jesus is a great Savior, and that the salvation that is offered through him is a great salvation that must not be neglected. Now, I made the statement that the book of Hebrews is a Christological masterpiece. It is a masterpiece concerning the doctrine of Christ. But the book of Hebrews is also a masterpiece concerning covenant theology. And so the theme that Jesus is better, that the author goes into great effort to describe to us, is perhaps matched by the effort he goes in to describe for us the superiority of the new covenant. And so the second primary theme that we see running through the book of Hebrews is the theme that the new covenant is a better covenant. Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the Old Testament priesthood. And in addition to this, the covenant that he mediates is a better covenant than the old covenant. Hebrews 8 verse 6 says, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. And so there we have it. The covenant he mediates is better. Now why is this new covenant, this covenant that Jesus Christ is a mediator, better? Well, first and foremost, it is better because its mediator is Christ. We've already looked at the supremacy of Christ over all other things, Therefore, it is only right to conclude that any covenant that he mediates is going to be better than any other covenant that he does not mediate. Better mediator, better covenant. Further, in Hebrews 8, we see a quotation from the prophecy of Jeremiah. And we see something of the superior nature of this covenant there. If you would, notice verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 8. says, For this is the covenant that I, will, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now what does this mean? What is the significance of saying that in this covenant, this better covenant, that God will write His laws on the hearts of His people? Does it mean that the law of God is not written on the hearts of all men? Well, no. 
In Romans chapter 2, for example, Paul makes it clear that the moral law of God is written on the hearts of all men. This is what we call natural law. It's true for all men, regardless of their background, regardless of their culture, regardless of their religion. All men and women everywhere intrinsically know that certain things are wrong to do. And this is because the very moral law of God is written on their hearts. And so if the law is written on the hearts of all men, what does it mean that the new covenant is better because the law of God is written on the hearts of those who are in the new covenant? Well, what it means is simply this. It means that for all those who are in the new covenant, as, as a result of the regenerating and sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, that every member of the covenant loves the Lord Jesus Christ and obeys Him because they have been given a new heart that desires to obey the law of God. And so the new covenant member finds that the law sweetly complies with the gospel and therefore the law is not a burden to them but a great help to them as they seek to follow after, worship, and love their Savior. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so every member of the new covenant loves Jesus and therefore obeys his commandments. Not perfectly, but the disposition of the heart of one who is in the new covenant is obedience motivated by love. For he who has been forgiven much loves much. Now what makes that better than the old? Well, in the old, the law was written on tablets of stone. And therefore, not every member of that covenant had a new heart that loved and obeyed God. In the new covenant, every member loves and obeys God. And why is that such great news? So the new covenant is better than the old because in the new covenant, every member of the new covenant loves and obeys God. Now why is that such great news and great encouragement and consolation to us? Because every single New Covenant member will be in heaven. It is guaranteed that every single New Covenant member will be in heaven. Why? Because they love God. And we know that for those that love God, who are called according to His purpose, all things work together for their good. And what is that good? That they will be conformed to the image of Christ. And so this promise that all things will work together for the good of those that are in the new covenant with God means the guarantee of complete sanctification. It means glorification. It means going to heaven. And so we have these two great themes running through the book of Hebrews. On the one hand, we have lifted up for us a great Savior in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on the other hand, how does this great Savior save? He saves in and through the new covenant of which he mediates. And so if you are united to Christ by faith, then you are made a partaker of the new covenant. And if you be a partaker of the new covenant, you will be saved. You must be saved. Why? Because the new covenant is established in the very blood of Christ that takes away sin and not in the blood of bulls and goats that can never take away sin. And so if you be a member of the new covenant, Christ has shed his blood for you and has therefore made atonement for you. Further, he has given you the gift of his perfect righteousness and he has given you a new heart, a heart that is being sanctified and being made fit for heaven. Now, the two themes that we have just explored are obviously of central importance in the book of Hebrews. But are these two themes the aim of or the purpose of the book. In other words, was this book written primarily to be a theological treatise on the doctrine of Christ and on covenant theology? The answer is no. The aim of this book is not primarily academic, but rather pastoral. So to understand the purpose of the book, we need to orient ourselves somewhat with the occasion that necessitated this pastoral letter to be written. Now in some ways this is a very difficult task. The date, authorship, and location of the recipients of this letter are all unknown. And to try to make a definitive statement on those aspects would be a work of speculation. However, one thing is clear. The recipients of this letter were primarily Jewish Christians 
And they were those who had faced much persecution in the past and were likely continuing to face persecution of various kinds. And there was real danger that they would be tempted to turn away from Christ. Whether that would have entailed an attempt to return to Judaism or an attempt to combine Judaism and Christianity or to just simply fall away from Christ, we cannot say 100%. But we do know the primary pastoral concern on the heart of the writer was that the Hebrew Christians would not fall away, but rather persevere in the faith to the end. That was his goal. He wrote to, the, he wrote to these believers so that they would persevere in the faith to the end. That was his pastoral goal. In many ways, what we have in the book of Hebrews is quite similar to what we read in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, where the Apostle Paul describes the aim or the goal of his ministry. 1 Timothy 1, 5 reads, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And so if the author of Hebrews was to write a similar verse, it would probably go something like this. The aim of my charge is love for God that is manifested in a faith that perseveres to the end and a love for the people of God that is manifested in encouraging your brothers and sisters to likewise persevere in the faith. And so love for Christ is evidenced by persevering and not falling away is the aim or purpose of the book, then we now begin to see more clearly the purpose of the doctrinal teaching concerning Christ and the new covenant. The means by which the author intends to bring about his intended goal is through preaching on the necessary implications of the doctrine of Christ and of the doctrine of the new covenant. And what are those necessary implications? I believe there's at least two. First, because Christ is, is a worthy and an able Savior, and because He has instituted and established a better covenant that guarantees salvation for all those who are included therein, the necessary implication for those who have trusted in Christ is that they should have great encouragement to persevere and run the race set before them by way of looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. So the first implication is this. If you are one who is looking unto Jesus, if you are one who is included in the new covenant, you have great hope to run the race with confidence and perseverance. Secondly, the second implication is this. Because Jesus is so great of a Savior, and because the salvation that is provided through the covenant He mediates is so great, be warned. Because if you neglect so great a Savior and so great a salvation, then you have no hope at all. And all that you have to look forward to is a fearful expectation of judgment. And so those are the implications of the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of the new covenant. If you are looking to Jesus, if you are a member of the new covenant, you have great hope. But if you turn away from that, all you have to look forward to is the judgment of God. For our God is a consuming fire. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so the great aim of this book is clear. The book is written to believers to encourage them to persevere by looking unto Jesus and the great salvation that is theirs in Him. Now that we've laid some groundwork, let us return back to our original question. Why warn Christians about falling away? Well, there are five such warning passages recorded for us in the book of Hebrews. And you've already heard portions of two of those read in your hearing this evening, but I want to bring your attention to all five so you can see how critically important this is to the author of the book of Hebrews. And by the way, a good rule of thumb for when you, have, when you are reading and studying the Scriptures is this. If you see something being repeated multiple times, time after time, then it's probably really important. There's a reason when you're driving down a road and they're doing road work that they put out several warnings prior to the, to the work. The reason is because if you do not heed the warnings, the result could possibly be death. Well, in the same way, the book of Hebrews has several of those warnings in bright flashing lights. Let's look at them. So let's look first at, the first one is found in Hebrews chapter 2. 
So if you would turn there, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape, here's the warning, if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Second warning passage. If you would please turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Now this warning passage is a lengthy warning passage. It goes from Hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 all the way through to chapter 4 verse 13. Now for time's sake we're just going to read Hebrews 3, 12 through 14. It says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have come to share in Christ, if, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the, end, to the end. So we see another warning. Take care lest you fall away. Third warning passage is found for us in it begins in chapter 5, verse 11, and runs through all the way through chapter 6, verse 12. For time's sake, we will read chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt for a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed and its end is to be burned. So again, we have this warning. Do not fall away, because if you fall away, the end is that you will be burned. Fourth warning passage is found in Hebrews chapter 10, and it goes from verses 19 through 39, and we will read together verses 26 through 31. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So once again, we have this fearful warning that if you fall away, you will be destroyed by the thrice holy God. And finally, the last warning passage is found in Hebrews chapter 12. It runs from verses, verse 14 down through verse 29. And we will read just uh, verse 25 of Hebrews 12. He says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So we have all of these warning passages that say basically the same thing. If you fall away from Christ, you will be damned. You will fall into the hands of the living God and you will incur the very wrath of God. Now, 
Why are these warnings about not falling away given to Christians? Well, Christians have sought to answer these warning passages in a variety of different ways throughout the history of the church. And I want to give you four various views on how to answer the question that we are wrestling with this evening. Concluding with the view that I believe is not only the most faithful to the teaching of Scripture, but also that which is most helpful to our souls. The first view is the Arminian view. Of course, the Arminian position is to teach that true Christians can and do fall away, and therefore these warnings are genuine warnings. They teach that Christians can lose their salvation, and thus these warnings are real warnings. As you might expect, the problem with this view is apparent. On the one hand, it denies clear teaching in other passages where it, is, where it states that it is impossible for one to lose their salvation. So it's not consistent with the rest of Scripture. It's not consistent with the whole counsel of God. On the other hand, you can imagine that those who hold to this view often struggle with having assurance because they lack the confidence that comes from believing that Christ, by virtue of the covenant He mediates, is strong and able to save to the uttermost, uttermost all those who come to Him by faith. So they lack that assurance that is given to us in the teaching of Hebrews about who Christ is and about the covenant which He mediates. So this is a, a wrong understanding of how to answer this question. Why are these warnings given to Christians? A second view. There are certain dispensationalists and hyper-preterists that relegate these warnings to temporal judgments on the nation of Israel and effectively defame or neuter these warning passages as having nothing to do with salvation and therefore having no bearing on us today as we read it beyond perhaps the value that comes from reading historical accounts. So it, they, they would take this passage to say this is not talking about salvation at all. It's talking about temporal judgments on the nation of Israel. Third view is a view that many Calvinists hold to. And the view that they hold to is, of course, to say that these warning passages ultimately describe those who are false believers. Those who have made false professions of faith and thus are exposed by means of their falling away. In this view, the focus is turned towards Christians examining themselves to see if they be in the faith. Now there is certainly a truth to this. The New Testament is full of examples of false believers and appeals to examine the genuineness of one's faith. There, of course, is the parable of the soils where we see some who seem to be believers but only one was truly a believer. We see Jesus making it clear that on the day of judgment there will be those who claim to be disciples and yet Jesus will say, I never knew you, depart from me. We see many who followed Christ for a short time to only later fall away. Remember Jesus in John 6 speaking to the twelve when he asked them, will you go away also? Meaning, will you likewise fall away like these other temporary believers? Judas Iscariot is a classic example of a false believer. We see other examples in Acts and in the various epistles. And so the point is clear. The reality of false believers is a huge theme throughout the scriptures. Some of these false believers are wolves who are deceivers. And other false believers are those who think they are believers but have deceived themselves. Perhaps the classic verse that is used in this particular view is 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, which of course reads, They went out from us, why? Because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. Now, we must admit here that it is true that if someone falls away from the faith, that it is evident that they were never truly saved to start with. This is a clear teaching of Scripture. Therefore, it is right that we should on a regular basis examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith and therefore make our calling and election sure. However, there are, there are, I think, at least two issues with this view. I believe this view commits the error of teaching right doctrine from the wrong text. 
and thus leads to two issues which can be damaging. First, the view that these verses are meant to describe false believers and therefore their intended purpose is to drive the reader into introspection to determine if they are truly a believer has led many a Christian to great doubts and fears and has had a paralyzing effect on many a genuine believer. And that does the very opposite of what the author's intention was, which was to encourage believers to run the race of faith with confidence and perseverance. What this view fails to account for is the reality that the apostasy passages describe a hard-hearted and stubborn refusal to repent. In chapter 2, we see falling away marked by what? By drifting away. And, an, and a neglect of Christ and the great salvation that He offers. In chapter 3, we see a falling away marked by what? By an evil and unbelieving heart. In chapter 5, we see falling away marked by becoming dull of hearing, ignorant, refusing to grow, sluggish. In chapter 10, we see those who are falling away as marked by those who go on sinning deliberately. And in chapter 12, we see falling away as marked by those who refuse the discipline of God. And so it is important to note here that if a church is a healthy, functioning church, that those who are in danger of falling away, as described in Hebrews, should in most cases be under the discipline of the local church as a result of their unrepentant sinfulness. Genuine Christians who struggle with sin but love Christ, love the brethren, and are making slow but real progress in repentance should not be paralyzed by these warning passages, but rather built up in hope. Several of these warning passages are coupled with great reasons for genuine Christians to have strong assurance of their salvation. Particularly, we see that in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Notice with me, if you would, in Hebrews chapter 6. And so, after he gives a strong warning to not fall away, he gives a great encouragement to genuine believers in verses 9 through 12. Look what the author says. He says, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for His name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. These warning passages for the genuine Christian should give you great hope. For those who are truly turning away from Christ, it should send them into utter fear. But if you are a genuine Christian who's clinging to Christ and seeking to follow Him, although imperfectly, these warning passages will not drive you into despair or despondency. They will build your faith in Christ. They will build your assurance and your confidence. Notice again in chapter 10. Brother Ryan mentioned this in the Scripture reading, but notice chapter 10, verses 32 through 35. So after giving this, this serious warning to not fall away, verse 32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who are treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, because this is true of you, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. And so the view that these passages are meant to drive a genuine believer into morbid introspection is missing the purpose of these passages, and therefore missing the great blessing and consolation for the soul that these passages afford to the genuine Christian. The second issue with this view that many Calvinists have is that what they do with these warning passages is that they completely miss the purpose of these passages by concluding that because a Christian can't lose their salvation, therefore these passages have no bearing on me. 
that because these passages are ultimately just a description of false believers and therefore not a genuine warning to true Christians. And so it's not, a, it's not a warning that a true Christian has to deal with. That's a wrong way to approach those passages. It's a wrong way to understand what the author of the Hebrews is seeking to tell us. Now I want to make a brief excursus here to describe how to view these warning passages not as not being addressed to Christians is to basically make the exact same error the hyper-Calvinist makes with regard to the free offer of the gospel. Now, I kind of fumbled that sentence up. Basically what I meant is this. To not view those warning passages as, as genuine warnings to genuine Christians is to make the same error that hyper-Calvinists make when they don't believe in the free offer of the gospel. The hyper-Calvinist believes that God only genuinely offers salvation to the elect. They reason like so. The non-elect can't be saved, thus there is no genuine offer of the gospel from God to the non-elect. Now this is of course to go beyond the plain sense of Scripture and to impose a theological system onto the message of Scripture. The Bible clearly teaches that whosoever will repent and believe in Christ shall be saved. This whosoever genuinely means that if anyone will repent and believe, they will be saved. It doesn't mean that this is true for the elect, but it's not really true for the non-elect. So if I'm preaching the gospel correctly, I can stand before any sinner and with, and with full confidence proclaim that if they will trust in Christ, they will be saved. All the while knowing that if they are not elect, they will not do the very thing that would lead to their salvation. And so this leads me to a fourth view concerning how to answer the question, why warn Christians to not fall away? Well, as you could expect, I've saved the final view as being the view that I hold to, and I believe it is most faithful to the Scripture and most helpful to the Christian. The warning passages in Hebrews are genuine warnings to real Christians. In much the same way as the message of the gospel is a genuine offer of salvation to all sinners, even to the non-elect, the warnings of Hebrews are genuine warnings to all, whether they be truly Christian or not. Remember, the purpose of this book is to encourage genuine Christians to persevere in their faith. The means by which the author intended to bring about this desired purpose was to point the believers first to the supremacy of Christ, that He is an able Savior, and secondly, to, to the supremacy of the new covenant. And both of these doctrinal truths together lead to two very clear implications. The first being, because Christ is a worthy and able Savior, and because He has instituted and established a better covenant that guarantees salvation, for all those who are included therein, the necessary implication for those who have trusted in Christ is that they should have great encouragement to persevere and run the race set before them, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of their faith. The second implication is this. Because Jesus is so great a Savior, and because the salvation that is provided through the covenant is so great a salvation, be warned. Because if you neglect so great a Savior and so great a salvation by way of an evil, unbelieving, sluggish, disobedient, and willfully disobedient heart, then you have no hope of salvation and all that you have to look forward to is a fearful expectation of judgment. And so the warning passages are genuine warnings given to true believers and are thus intended to be a part of the means by which God preserves His people unto the end. And so rightly understood, these warning passages are actually a means of grace for the believer and are meant for your encouragement, preservation, and growth in holiness. If you would, turn with me to the book of Acts. If you would, turn to Acts chapter 27. And of course, in Acts, we have the account of when Paul was at sea and they were stranded on the boat for, uh, for many weeks. If you would, notice verse 21 of Acts 27. 
And we're going to read 21 down through 25. And I want you to notice the promise that is given here. Verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and have not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart. Here's a promise. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of, of God, to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. So we have a promise here that none of you will be lost. None of you will lose your life in this situation. But notice verse 29 through 32. Verse 29, And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they were seeking to fall away from the ship. See that? Bail out. As they were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea and under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, they were doing so in a, in a dishonest way. Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. So we have a promise, and then we have the means by which the promise is kept. In the same way, Christians, we have a promise that if we are in Christ, we will be kept, and we will not fall away. But one of the means by which God causes this promise to be kept is through believers taking heed to the warnings to not fall away. If you would, take a copy of the Trinity Hymnal. And we're winding down here. If you would, take a copy of the Trinity Hymnal and turn to page 677. You would notice chapter 14 and notice paragraph 2. So chapter 14 of saving faith. <clears throat> and notice the second paragraph. And notice the first line. says, by this faith, what kind of faith? Saving faith. Faith that saves. The faith of a true Christian. By this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatever is revealed in the word for the authority of God himself. So by this faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is revealed in the word. So what we see here is that, tr that true saving faith, when it reads the word of God, what does it do? It believes the Word of God. It believes what it is teaching. And this belief will lead to appropriate responses based on what a particular passage of Scripture is teaching. That's what it says if you drop down a few lines. Find that line where it says, and also act differently. Notice how the confession describes the way in which a true believer who has saving faith reads the Bible. It says, and also this faith, also act differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God. And so we see here the ways in which saving faith manifests itself in relation to the Word of God is what? When saving faith reads a command in Scripture, what does it do? It renders obedience to that command. When saving faith reads a threatening or a warning in Scripture, what does a, what does a Christian do? The true Christian trembles at that warning. And when saving faith reads a promise from God, saving faith embraces that promise. And so I want to, I want to close by applying these, these warning passages to, passages to your consciences with a desire to see you persevere in the faith to the salvation of your souls. Dear Christian, listen to this warning. Do not fall away. Do not harden your heart. Do not go on deliberately sinning because if you do, you will 
go to hell. You will fall into the hands of the living God and this is a fearful thing because He is a consuming fire and you will not escape. But also remember this. Christ Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. And so ask yourself this question. Do you love Christ? Are you obeying His commands as revealed in Scripture? Are you trembling at His threatenings as revealed in Scripture? And are you, embrace, are you embracing His promises as revealed in Scripture? If so, then take heart and remember the words of Hebrews 10, verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So dear ones, continue on in faith and in so doing preserve your souls. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Father, although these warning passages are hard, we receive them as good gifts from you. We receive them as the very means by which you are keeping your promise that, that if you have begun a good work in us, you will bring it to completion. Father, I pray that you would cause us to tremble at your holiness. To tremble at the reality that you do not turn a blind eye to sin. But also, Father, I pray that you would give us great hope and great encouragement and great consolation knowing that if we have fled to Christ, that if we trust in Christ, that your holy demands have been satisfied that His perfect life and sacrificial death makes it so that our sins have been forgiven and that we have the very righteousness of Christ imputed to us. So Father, I pray You give us great hope, give us great confidence, give us great assurance in the Gospel and help us to run the race set before us. To the glory of Christ, and Father, help us to not only consider our own selves, but to consider one another. That we would take it as a covenant obligation to help our brothers and sisters also to persevere. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you would at this time please stand. And we will sing together hymn number 432 in the Trinity hymnal. Jesus, what a friend for sinners. <laughs>